All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 18. Matthew 6, 1 to 18. These are the words of our Lord. Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you do your alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your closet, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, which is in secret, and your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard because of their many words. <clears throat> be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you even ask him. After this manner therefore pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that you appear not unto men to fast, but unto your Father, which is in secret. And your Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. Let's pray once more.
Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these powerful words of truth. And we pray, Lord, that this morning that you would lift us out of our routine, that you'd focus our mind, that you'd jar us awake, that we may have ears to hear what you're saying to us through this text this morning that we've fallen upon in our reading. Lord, we thank you for how you speak the truth in love. And I just pray that we would all be filled with the Spirit and hear what you have to say, that we would listen and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Giving to those in need. Y'all know what that means? Praying, fasting, or any kind of self-denial. These are the three most standard religious practices. They were the most standard religious practices in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders and the people thought much about giving to the poor, giving to those who need. could be not just someone who's poor, but someone who has need. Fasting and prayer. These things were standard religious practices. They make up three of the five pillars of Islam. If you're familiar with the pillars of Islam, three of the five are giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So this is just standard religious practice. And even in Christianity, we have these practices as well as Christians. We also make much of giving to the need, praying to God, and, and also denying ourselves and, and fasting, don't we? But these three things, Jesus tells us, are also the biggest opportunities for hypocrisy. Amen? And Jesus says, take heed. Who knew that such good things could be so deadly? Draw your attention to this, Jesus says, and take heed. This is what we'll be discussing this morning. But before we do, it's important that we don't disconnect the Sermon on the Mount, because uh, sometimes when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we have a hard time seeing how it all connects, and it's just kind of random and scattered. But this section that we read comes out of what we have been just reading. Now, if you remember, Jesus had just said, that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, right? He said, not one jot or tittle will in any way pass, but all will be fulfilled. And therefore, if anyone breaks even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He says, unless you have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, guess what? You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will be cast out if you don't have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And you see, the people believed the scribes and the Pharisees were the righteous ones. So in the section that we had read in chapter 5, Jesus corrects the people's understanding of the law that the Pharisees had taught them. He said, you've heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. So in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is correcting the teaching of the Pharisees. And now in chapter 6, he's exposing the practice of the Pharisees before the people, because the people thought they were the righteous ones. The people looked at them and said, look, they're the ones who are, who are to be our example. 
They're the ones who were to look to. They're the ones who was doing the law. And Jesus is now saying, no. Their teaching isn't only bad, their practice is also bad. And he calls them three times hypocrites. In these three examples of giving and prayer and fasting, Jesus calls them hypocrites. And what is a hypocrite? In your own mind, do you feel like you understand what a hypocrite is? We often think it means someone who's inconsistent, right? So someone who says one thing, but does another. Or sometimes someone who says one thing and then they'll say another thing over here, we'll call them a hypocrite. But a hypocrite isn't someone who's just inconsistent. The idea of being a hypocrite is being an actor or a pretender. An actor or a pretender. Because sometimes you can be inconsistent and you don't mean to be. Have you ever been inconsistent and you didn't mean to be? And someone had to point at you and you're, oh, you're right, that wasn't consistent. Thank you. But an actor is someone who's putting on a show so that he may appear to be something that he's not. You're not thoughtlessly inconsistent. You know you're putting on a show. And so Jesus uses the word for actor, which wasn't necessarily a bad word. It's only a bad word when he's applying it in this way to these moral pretenders. It's the difference between being authentic or being an actor. It's not just a statement about what you do. It's a statement about who you are. It's not just a statement of what you do, which can be inconsistent, but it's a statement of who you are. You are an actor. You are not authentic. And Jesus calls them out on this. The Pharisees acted righteous, but in reality, they were unrighteous. They acted like they loved the poor. They gave money to the poor. They probably gave more money to the poor than most of us put together. Think about that. And Jesus says they were a bunch of hypocrites. They acted like they honored God, but the reality was they only loved men's praise, and that's why they did what they did. They acted like they were serving God, and in reality, they were only serving themselves. The people believed the Pharisees, and Jesus is now exposing the Pharisees, because God, the people can be confused, but God can never be confused. You believe that, brothers and sisters? God knows everything. God searches our hearts. And he isn't confused about you. You can fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. And he's the one that really matters. He's the one who's ultimately your judge. You're not going to face Matt on Judgment Day. (laughs) You're going to face God. And thankfully, God does expose us. He doesn't just wait till Judgment Day and just go on. I don't want you to get the idea that Jesus hated the Pharisees. Jesus had a lot of harsh things to say to the Pharisees, and we often point that out. But he didn't hate the Pharisees, even though he exposes the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, see here he's talking to the people about the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he speaks directly to the Pharisees, and it's intense. He calls them out on hypocrisy. He calls them out on their two-facedness. He says, you look good before men, but inwardly you're full of wickedness and hypocrisy and envy and all sorts of evil. He calls them out. It's very similar to this passage here. 
But at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus weeps for them. And he also says at the end of Matthew 23 that I will send you people, prophets, apostles, and you're going to kill them. And then he weeps over them. Which of the prophets didn't your fathers kill? You see, when God speaks harsh words to us, brothers and sisters, it's not because he hates us. Did God hate Israel, even though he sent prophets to them to speak hard words? No. See, if God hated the Pharisees, he wouldn't have saved the Pharisee of Pharisees, (laughs) would he? You know, I'm speaking of Saul, who consented to Stephen's death and was the fiercest opponent of Christianity. And Jesus said, why do you persecute me? But Paul said that Christ loved him and gave himself for him. So Jesus did not hate the Pharisees. God does not hate hypocrites. So if you feel like you can be an actor sometimes, how many of you feel like you can be an actor sometimes? Yeah. God doesn't hate you for that, even though it's sin. But he will speak these hard things to us to expose us and to protect the people from believing a lie. Now notice he highlights three of these main religious practices. Notice that Jesus doesn't teach here that we, that we should do these things. He doesn't teach here, give to the poor, pray, and fast. Because he assumes that we will do those things. That's just standard religious practice. He expects we will. And it's not about us doing it, but about the manner of us doing it. Let me say that again. I know that beeping is really exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus doesn't teach us to do these things because he expects we will do these things. Do you think that giving to the poor or giving to the needy or helping a neighbor out is something we should do as Christians? Of course it is. Praying to your Father in heaven. Is that something that we should do as Christians? Of course it is. And fasting and giving up things for God. Is that something we should do as Christians? Yes. But here's the point. How do you do these things? In what manner do you do these things? Jesus brings it to the heart again. This is a heart issue and not just a matter of behavior. It's always about the heart when it comes to to morality with God. It's always about your motive and your reasons for doing things, which to God makes him know whether you're authentic or an actor or not. These three times, they're all the same. Jesus says, don't do your giving, don't do your praying, don't do your fasting to be seen by men. That's the thing he says. Each time, it's very much the same. Is that a contradiction from chapter 5, verse 16? I know we mentioned that before, but take a look. If you flip back in uh, chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus here said, Let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So there he says, let your light shine that they may see your good works. Is that a contradiction? Because now he says, don't do your good deeds before men to be seen of them. But it's not a contradiction when you understand that it's about your motive. One is to praise you and one is to give glory to the Father. A.B. Bruce has a really helpful quote or quip about this. He says, Show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. I think we can all understand that. Have you, is, there ever, is there ever a time when you're tempted to hide? When you know God would have you say something or do something, but you are afraid to do it because of what men will think, and so you hide. That's not about you giving glory to yourself, is it? That's about you giving glory to God. When you're tempted to hide, brothers and sisters, that's the time to show. But when you're tempted to show, that's the time to hide. And we all know what that's like, too. Jesus says, If you do good deeds to be seen by men, you have your reward in full. You get nothing from God. He doesn't acknowledge that as a good deed. Is that a good thing, do you think? Is that a good reward? To have men praise you, even though it's not even true? It's false. What happens when they find out it's false later on? Would you give up God's praise for man's temporal and false praise? Is that a good trade? As we look to this first example of giving, Jesus humorously describes the Pharisees as giving as though they sound a trumpet before them when they give. Now, we have no record of them sounding a trumpet. They probably didn't sound a trumpet, but Jesus was humorously saying, that's, exa- that's kind of what it's like. A trumpet would be sounded when a great announcement was going to be made. And so Jesus says the Pharisees in the, in the synagogues or on the corner of the street would sound a great trumpet. And so everyone would look and then they would do their good deeds so everyone would see how humble and righteous and generous they are. Today, it would be like going on Facebook and saying on your uh, status, just gave $500 to charity to help those poor people out. How many likes can I get? <laughs> right? <laughs> wonder how many likes I can get. Yeah. Just skipped the big game to go help my friend move. Took all day. Praise God. How many likes, how many likes can I get? <laughs> Don't do your good deeds to be seen of Facebook friends. <laughs> Jesus tells us how to give in verse 3. Let me draw your attention there. Everyone look. This is, a, this is how we're to give according to Jesus in verse 3. He tells us explicitly. Here it is. When you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's, that's acceptable giving in God's sight. What that means is you are hardly to notice yourself giving. You are to be noticing the one in need. You're not to be really thinking about what you're doing. You're just meeting a need that you see. And really, some people might ask the question, well, I mean, that you will, will receive a reward with the Father. I mean, is it wrong to give 
and what you're thinking about is, well, I'm going to give so I can get a reward. I think Jesus in verse 3 says, you're not even supposed to be thinking about you in your giving. Your right hand isn't supposed to be thinking about your left hand. Your left hand isn't supposed to be thinking about your right. You aren't considering what, you're, what you're doing. You're thinking about a need and you're loving someone in need to help them. Does that make sense? That's why we should give. God will take care of rewards. But let us think about the one in need and not ourselves when we give. We need to hear this, don't we? This isn't something that like, we can all say, yeah, I already know that. I think we need to hear this. Any other kind of giving is not acceptable in God's sight. Number two, prayer. Jesus tells us that the Pharisees love to pray. They love to pray. He says it. Here's why they love to pray. They love the places where they pray. That's what his emphasis is. They love certain places to pray in the synagogues and on the streets because there they can be seen by men. That's why they love to pray. Not really that they love God, but they just love people looking at them and seeing how spiritual they are. People do still pray on the streets today. If you were to go to uh, Europe, you'd see this more frequently. But there's actually a lot of conflict about whether the Muslims should be praying on the streets. Now, if you know, in Islam, there's certain times of the day when you're supposed to pray. And wherever you are, that's where you're supposed to do it. I remember watching a, a, an Islamic movie, and these two Muslims were kind of debating whether they should pray or not in this public setting. Because um, the time of prayers come, should we pray or not? And one was saying, no, we shouldn't. And the other was saying, of course we should. It's the right thing to do. And it makes a big scene about this guy praying in public. And I thought of this verse. I don't believe Jesus is condemning all public prayer, as if we can't pray together in church. But why do you pray in public is it to be seen of men? Jesus says the best place to pray is the place where you cannot get and learn a lesson that can be applied in other, in other ways as well beyond prayer. The best place to pray, pray is the place where you cannot get a claim from man because they don't know what you're doing. They don't see it. And this isn't, okay, I'm going into my closet to pray now. See everybody in a few hours. <laughs> just so you, no one can see me. <laughs> that defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> the best place to pray, and apply this to other, place, other areas of life as well, is in secret where it's just you and God. The only one you can see is God. The only one he knows is God. not to impress others and you can pour out your heart before God and he hears you in secret such prayer Jesus says is good now Jesus takes a little detour from his discussion of hypocrisy which he picks up later and now that he's on the topic of prayer 
he starts to talk a little bit more about this. We don't know. Maybe somebody asked him a question at this point. We know in Luke, when he talks about the Lord's Prayer, it was in response to a question. Someone said, Lord, teach us to pray. So maybe as he's talking about prayer, someone asked a question. Maybe he taught in Luke at a different occasion. But he turns now to talk about how to pray. When we pray. And here's what he says we're not to do in verse 7. And this is packed with meaning. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Vain meaning worthless. doesn't have any value whatsoever to use these repetitions as the heathens do. So this was common practice in Jesus' day. Common practice. So men would have been very familiar with that. He's saying you're not to be like them because they think. Here's why they do it. They think that the gods will hear them because of their many words. Now, do you remember in the Old Testament the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the mountain? Now, the prophets of Baal, did they have many words or a little bit of words when they were calling out to their God? Many. It says that they were calling out to their God from morning till noon, and when nothing happens, from noon until night. They weren't just calling out to God. They were slashing themselves and doing backflips off the altar, it says. Leaping off the altar. So all day they're calling out to God, and they think they'll be heard by their many words. How, many, how much did Elijah pray? He just prayed it one little prayer. Okay, Lord, now's the time to burn this thing up, and God just does it. <laughs> right? <laughs> See, there's a, there's a difference. You don't need to manipulate God with many words you're trusting in him the technical phrase that describes that manipulation of god in those days was fatiger deus it means tiring the gods <laughs> the idea was the gods aren't really on your side the gods aren't really interested in helping you so in order to get their aid you need to exhaust them through much praying and words and make them annoyed with you until they said you know what to shut the guy up i'll give him what he wants Fatiger Deus. It's kind of like a child who wants something from his parents, so he makes a big scene, he tantrums, he keeps asking until finally the parent gives the child what the child wants, even though the parent maybe doesn't want to give it. Just to shut the child up. He thinks to himself, you know, it's going to be better if I just give it. Jesus also tells the parable of the importunate or the persistent widow. And there's a really... Uh, there's a really bad judge, and the judge doesn't care for widows, as judges are supposed to. The judge doesn't care for widows. But the widow, by persistence, every day, every day, coming to that place and begging and begging and begging, finally the judge gets so sick of the widow, it just gives her what she wants. Now Jesus taught that parable not, as some suppose, for us to think that that's the way that we're to pray before God. He's teaching there what he's teaching here. God's not like that. And Jesus' point is, if a bad judge will finally cave in and be so sick and tired of this person that will grant your request, how much more will a good God who cares about you So Jesus 
is dispelling the myth of how we're to pray to God that people think God is not like that. God will never cave into manipulation, by the way. Just so you know, he's never given anyone anything because he was tired of them. He doesn't cave into that manipulation because he cares for you and gives you what you need. Now, sometimes we don't understand his ways, right? Because sometimes we do trust him and we pray and we say, God, I do need this. And sometimes he doesn't answer. I think of Abraham. If you remember Abraham, he needed a child. He was childless. And he was praying for God to give him a child. And you see it in Genesis. He's saying, God, I'm childless. You know, what's the good if Eliezer, my servant's going to get all my things? What's the good, God? You know, I'm getting old here. We've tried Hagar. You didn't accept that. God, I don't understand. But God has a purpose in the way he works and the way he answers our prayers. Can we trust him even when we don't understand? Can we believe that God isn't like the bad judge or those pagan gods that we have to tire for 90 years of our life before he gives us what we want? Can we trust that God, who knows all things, is good and that he has got a purpose for our lives and how he answers prayer is according to our need, which maybe we don't understand. One, one writer said, what we need will not always be clear initially, but it will be clear eventually. Can you trust that? And I think we'd save ourselves a lot of heartache too, because that's often our problem, isn't it? We think we know what we need, we're begging God for it, and we don't understand and we get frustrated. Can we trust in the goodness of God this is the grand theme of Jesus' teaching and his life and his death. This is the lesson that God wants us all to learn. Not just from his teaching, but his death. This is the lesson that God wants us to learn. Trust in God's goodness. Fatigar Deus does not believe in a good God. He says in verse 8, your father knows that you need it. He calls God your father. It's, when he says your father, he doesn't just mean your creator, which is what even pagans believe about God. They would call God their father, but all they mean is our, our, the place where we originated from, our creator. But when Jesus talks about the father, he's challenging us to trust in a God who's not just our creator, but in a God who us and cares for us just like any father would care for their kid. If you being evil know how to good gi give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you trust that? James Orr wrote, it is in the gospel of Jesus alone that this fatherhood is revealed to be the very essence of God. I mean, really, if you miss the fatherhood of God, you miss it all. You don't really know God if you miss this. The fatherhood of God. Are you doubtful that God is good? Jesus tells you he is good. Jesus shows you that God is good. 
here's how good God is. He loves you so much that even though you hate him, are disrespectful to him, don't listen to him, whine and complain, and deserve to be cast away, God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, which needed to be done, otherwise you'd go to hell. He couldn't just ignore your sin and let it go. God's love for you sent his son to do that which you needed, and what you needed was salvation. Can't you see that your need has been met, ultimately? And that even if you didn't get those physical things that you think you need, you didn't really need them, because you have, if, as a Christian, everything you need. You have eternal life. I mean, if we think, like, I need this physical thing so bad that if I don't get it, I'm not getting what I need, and it shows God isn't good, I think we're missing what our real need is. Can you see that God has met your need? Because he loves you so much and at a great cost. The Lord's Prayer. It was estimated in Easter of 2007 that more than 2 billion people prayed the Lord's Prayer that day. 2 billion people. Some people say that liturgy or reciting prayers is wrong. But I think if you look to the Psalms or even the songs that we sing, you can't hold that position because a song and a psalm is also meant for reciting. And it is basically a prayer just in a musical form. It can be bad, but it's not necessarily so. But one thing's for sure, the Lord's Prayer isn't meant to be a magic formula. So you shouldn't think that if I pray 90 Lord's Prayers, then God will hear me. And believe me, people believe that today, don't they? It's called praying the rosary. This is a guideline for prayer. It teaches us about prayer. Notice how short it is. Notice the contents of it. And the point of the Lord's Prayer is to give you a mindset other than the pagans. Look at verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Therefore, meaning in light of what I've just said, you pray. Not like the pagans. They pray like that. This is how you're to pray. This is a prayer of understanding who God is. And it starts like this. Our Father, isn't that a wonderful way to start? Remember, that Father is packed with meaning. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to angels. We pray directly to God our Father, who's willing to hear us, who wants to hear from us. If we couldn't pray to God directly, it'd be a statement about God. The whole idea of praying to saints is actually like, God is very busy, and I need someone who's in heaven to go over to the throne and talk to him on my behalf. Or, those guys are more, God will hear them better than he'll hear me. 
Mary, can you put a good word in for, to God for me? All doubting the goodness of God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is, that God would be known as a God who is good, full of grace and truth, a righteous God, a just God. The name of God is the character of God. The name of God is who God is. And he's saying, may your name be hallowed. May who you are be known and sanctified and holy in people's mind. May people know who you are and honor you for who you are. May the whole world, even these pagans, come to see who you are and hallow your name. That's the purpose of creation, that God's name would be hallowed. The purpose of Christ's coming, that God's name would be hallowed. The purpose of our salvation is that God's name would be hallowed. And here, Jesus says, that's the first thing. The first thing is not your daily bread, as important as that is. Because if you get your daily bread and you don't know God's name, you've missed the whole point. Number one, may God's name be hallowed. Jesus prayed that in John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name right before the cross. Second thing is, in verse 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. This, by the way, is the prayer of all Jews. So Jesus was just jumping on the bandwagon with that one. He was confirming that. The rabbis would say that a prayer was not really a prayer unless it included the kingdom or made mention of God's kingdom. Jesus makes mention of God's kingdom here. Jesus made much of the kingdom of God in his teaching. The question is often asked, does this refer to the, our, our, personal, our personal lives right now? Let the kingdom principles rule in our lives? Or does this refer to the eschatological later? Your kingdom... May you as king rule on this earth? And the answer is simply that it's referring to both. If we have only a view of a personal now view of the kingdom, that right now, you know, the kingdom is here, I'm a part of that kingdom, and I want to walk in kingdom principles, that's true, but it's deficient. If you have only a view of the future, the kingdom is yet to come, the king is yet to reign, the kingdom principles are yet to be established, that's true, but it's deficient. And the prayer here is that even now today would your kingdom be manifested in this earth and yet may you come. May your will be done today in my life. May your will be done in my heart. But also may one day the whole earth be like heaven in that everyone submits to the will of God. Heaven is in order and earth is out of order. Sometimes I wonder if we're worse than the devil. Because every time you see the devil in the Bible, he, he seems to be doing the will of God. God lets him go about his business. He goes to God for permission to do bad things. <laughs> the prayer is that 
the will of God would be done here. So notice, first things first, is God's God's kingdom, God's will. Before we ask for our own personal interests, God's interests are first. I think, brothers and sisters, we would have, our, our lives would be far more healthy in the way they're oriented if the first things was the God things and if God's name was more important to us than our own and God's interests more important to us than our own. Isn't that the source of all of our conflict? But we do move on to our own needs in verse 11 because this is important too. We look to God for our daily bread. Now, this is, I think, includes more than just our food also, but our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. In Luke, Jesus says, give us day by day our daily bread. So it isn't merely just a prayer asking for God to help you this day, but a trusting him that he'll help you tomorrow too, and the next day, and the next day. Day by day, God will take care of you. Your Father knows that you need these things. Jesus will talk more about this later in the same chapter. But the big deal here is trusting in God to take care of you. You're looking to God for your daily bread. You're not freaking out about, what am I going to eat? Such an attitude isn't an attitude of trust. In verse 12, and forgive us our debts or our sins in Luke as we forgive those who sin against us. And in verse 14 and 15, he elaborates on this point. This is sort of a, a point he's emphasizing in his discussion. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, a lot of people are confused about this because then it seems like God's forgiveness is dependent upon our goodness. Unless my life is in order, he's not going to forgive me. And Jesus is saying, yes, that is how it works according to God's law. And if God looks upon you if God is looking for someone who's worthy to be forgiven, as the law works, that's how the law works, then he needs to find someone who's forgiving others of their sins. See, forgiving others of their sins isn't just a new covenant phenomenon, but also an old covenant phenomenon. If you were living in the days of the Old Testament, men would wrong you. And if you didn't forgive them, then your Heavenly Father wouldn't forgive you. Why should he? You're not being a good person. You're not obeying the law. You're not loving God. You're not loving your neighbor. So it's important that we see that this is Jesus showing you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. See, they think they're righteous by law. But the reality is, if you want to be righteous by law, then in your giving to the poor, it needs to be flawless. It needs to be solely for God and God alone. In your prayer, it needs to be flawless. In your forgiving, it needs to be flawless. In your fasting, perfect. And unless you're perfect, you're not acceptable in God's sight. So brothers and sisters, my understanding of this passage is that this is not Jesus teaching 
the gospel, but he's teaching us what the law requires of us if God is to forgive us and accept us. In the New Testament, we find a different order. It says in the New Testament, forgive others just as God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. Now, if this teaching stood true for the New Covenant, I think the apostles would have taught it and they never did. But the order is reversed. Does that make sense? You can think about that. But Jesus is saying here, if you want God to look upon you and see you as worthy of being accepted, then you need to have a totally forgiving heart towards all. I think if God were to judge us that way, even us as Christians, we would probably fall short. And in verse 13, this is a wonderful statement of our weakness. I don't know if you've had the view that once you become a Christian, you're just perfectly strong. Give me temptation, God. Give me trials, because now I'm never going to fall again. But the, the prayer is, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. God, you are the one who must deliver me from evil. Do not let me go into temptation, God, but as you lead me, lead me away from those things. Because if I go into those things, I'm bound to fall. A statement of our constant weakness. And I think we would do well to remember that we do not have any strength to oppose our sin, to oppose sin at all, except the strength that comes from God. So we shouldn't have the attitude of, bring it on, God, like Peter. I won't deny you, even if everyone else does. He should have prayed, Oh God, lead me not into temptation. And finally, the prayer ends with a doxology, which some doubt Jesus said this, because in Luke it's not found. But regardless as to whether Jesus said it or not, it has been used by the church since the earliest days. The church has, when they said the Lord's Prayer, has said, for thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And Jewish prayers almost always ended with a doxology like this. So it is a beautiful thing. The kingdom's not ours, it's not mine, it's God's and it's his forever. It's good for us to lift our mind up out of our own little kingdoms, out of our own little spheres and to see that really in the end it's God's glory. God will be glorified. No one else will. God will rule and no one else will. Except we who rule with him by his granting. But it's all God's. Forever and ever. The Lord's Prayer is about taking your eyes off of yourself and putting it on a God who's good and worthy to be praised. And lastly, Jesus turns back in verse 16 to discussion of hypocrisy. And once again, the issue is, when you fast, don't do it to be seen by men. When you make sacrifices for God, don't do those things so that men may give you glory, but hide it so that only God can see. And God will reward you openly. It's interesting. You know, as Christians... We shouldn't 
appear to men to be all pious. You know that? Pious is, um, you know, it's, it's a good word. It means reverent to God. But we shouldn't appear to be before men to be very different before men. We should be very normal when men look at us. They shouldn't see us as, ooh, there's the guy who goes and prays all the time. Or, ooh, there's the guy who sacrifices. Oh, there's the guy who gives all his money. We should just be very normal. Now, some people use that as an excuse not to be pious. Because, like, I shouldn't appear before men to give or to pray or to fast, so I won't give and I won't pray and I won't fast. <laughs> because I shouldn't appear it, I'm just not going to at all. That's not Jesus' teaching. We should have a practice of piety, of reverence, of giving, of prayer, of sacrifice for God. We should, but it shouldn't be before men. Men should just think we're very normal. But don't use that as an, as an excuse to not pray and give. Three things Jesus says take heed. Giving, praying, fasting. Ask yourself this morning, do you do these things? These are standard religious things. Do you do them? They're good. But how do you do them, brothers and sisters? Ask yourself, what manner do you do these things? To be seen by men? Do you give because of the one is, who's in need? Do you pray to God, your Father, who's in secret? If you want to be righteous before God by your works, if you want God to look upon you and to see you as righteous and worthy of eternal life because of what you do, then Jesus is here telling us that you must have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. You can't be like them. It's not just about giving and praying and fasting. It's about how you do those things. And unless you give perfectly, and unless you fast perfectly, and unless you pray perfectly, then God will not accept you as righteous. So I want to just caution everyone. Don't try to be righteous before God by your works. That's what every other religion besides Christianity teaches you to do. And they teach you to pray and fast and give. Don't try to be righteous before God by your works. Because unless you're perfect, you won't be accepted. And the, and the news is, you're not perfect and you'll never be. No one can. And the good news is that even though we all fail, even though we've all sinned and sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that acceptance with God and righteousness with God is on the basis of grace. Something that you don't deserve. Because God loves you and Christ died for you. And as a sinner, you can be forgiven freely by grace. There's a difference between being a sinner and a hypocrite. A hypocrite is one who acts and is not authentic. They act righteous when they're not. A sinner is one who doesn't act and just admits, I'm guilty. But brothers and sisters, let's not only be authentic in our admission of our sin, but let's also be authentic in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting not so that we may have praise from men. These three things are also the biggest opportunities to bless others. So let us take heed and give careful attention to our giving, praying, and fasting so that these things are not opportunities for evil, but opportunities for good, that God might be glorified. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to make your name and your interests the first desire in our lives. God, that we wouldn't put ourselves first, our supposed needs first, our praise. Oh God, you alone are worthy. And I pray, Lord, that we would have such a clear vision of that, of your amazing love and goodness, that we would have a desire that all men might know how wonderful you are and would hallow your name. Lord, we thank you that you take care of us. And I pray that we would see that you have taken care of us. And Lord, if you were to not give us bread for the rest of our lives, that we would be totally taken care of by you. Even so, Lord, we ask that you would take care of us in our physical needs and we trust that you will because you're good. Help us to understand that we don't always see our real need. Help us to trust in your goodness at all times. And Lord, make us people who do indeed have true reverence for you and a true practice of prayer and giving. Help us not to neglect these things, but to do them in a right manner. And we thank you for the honor and the privilege of knowing you and being salt and light in this dark world. Thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.